Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we have the opportunity um, to listen and to be taught and to reflect and to meditate on the truths of your word. Thank you because indeed our lives are built on your word. Thank you because we as believers are submitted to the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, that all that we learn today, that we are humble enough to apply it to our lives, to see where we need to make corrections and to adjust as necessary. I pray that your word informs every decision we make, even as we navigate this thing called life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. Hi, Bellumi. Hi, Shay. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Inka. Good to see you all. Um, it's been like two weeks now. It feels much longer, but um, it's it's good to be back. And we are still in First Timothy. How that is the case, I do not know, but it is well. I think this is part nine. Um, <laughs> and although we have just two chapters left, and I, I, I do think we'll get through at least one of them today. So we're making progress. We're making progress. Um, again, if you haven't listened to the last teaching um, on just thoughts and, I guess, words of advice as pertaining to my visit to Asbury Revival or the Asbury Worship Meetings, um, please do so. I, I do think it will bless you. Um, also, if you haven't caught up on um, previous teachings in First Timothy, please do so. It would definitely help um, just as we navigate through, especially because once we get to Second Timothy and Titus, we're going to be a lot faster because it's going to be the same. A lot of the same things will be repeated. But anyways, um, today we're going straight into it. First Timothy 5. There's not much to say as pertaining to pretext. We already know, at least pretty much everyone here knows what the book of Timothy is about. Paul is writing to a disciple who is also a minister of his and he's giving him instructions because he has appointed him to go to the church at Ephesus to set things in order. Um, so that's all we've been reading so far. And I, I think just one thing you should keep in mind is that even though Timothy or First Timothy is written to a minister of the gospel whether or not you're doing pulpit ministry like we said these are things that are written to the church in general it's for timothy to enforce so that as he does it in his life everyone else can do the same so don't say ah i'm not a minister what's my own no there's a lot for you to learn um so we're going to look at some of that today first timothy 5 verse 1 um if you haven't already bring out your bibles your writing materials your notepads. Um, I'm reading from the New King James as usual. All right, are we ready? First Timothy 5 verse 1, it starts. It says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger as sisters, with all purity. And so, right off the bat, Paul gives an instruction as pertaining to correcting people in the church that there is a way to do so even if they sinned they messed up it says just because you have spiritual authority over them doesn't mean that you can start flogging say how can you do this don't you no he says older men treat them as fathers 
you don't talk to your daddy how dare you <laughs> unless you are badly trained or you're watching nollywood right say how dare you i can't even believe this and you start to go on and on and on and on he says if you can't do that to your dad don't do that to older men in the church treat them as fathers same thing younger men as brothers brothers in christ because i remember the way i rebuked my younger brother growing up i beat him and i don't mean with cane i beat him <laughs> you can't do that in the church say ah you come here i will deal with you i would i would i would discipline you according to the lord you know the point there is to treat same thing with older mothers and older women as mothers just because you are in a place of spiritual authority or in quote you know more than them as pertaining to the things of the word it doesn't mean you should lose your manners there's a way to correct them same thing with younger women says as sisters and i love the emphasis with all purity right the point there is to be gentle to to even in the place of correction value the people you are correcting and be kind in the way you correct them he's simply telling timothy there is a way to correct and so if you're in a position of leadership there's a way to correct right you don't you don't insult you don't make people feel less than they actually are you treat them with respect and then he starts to go into the meat of today's discussion verse three honor widows who are really widows and I want you to remember all the conversations we've had in 1 Corinthians, for instance, or in 1 um, Timothy 2, about how women were marginalized in those cultures. If you remember what I talked about, they weren't able to vote, they weren't able to own land, they weren't able to speak in public, stuff like that. So imagine being a single old woman at that point in time. It is a miserable experience. If there's no one to take care of you, you are pretty much socially, economically, financially bankrupt, most likely, right? And so more than any part of that church community, these people needed the most help. When he says honor, he's not saying, ah, good morning, ma, I honor you. <laughs> no, not at all. As we're going to see, right, the word honor there, timao, it means to put value on something. And yes, that can, it doesn't have to be monetary value, right? You can put honor on a person. You can put honor on, a, on, on anything, right? To prize or to revere. In this context, he's saying financially take care of these people. And so when we see, for instance, later in this same verse, where it says those who labor are worthy of double honor. He is talking about what? payment but we're going to get there but for now it says honor widows who are really widows meaning the church has a responsibility to taking care of people who have no means to take care of themselves and that's what he's talking about and so when he says who is really a widow he's going to explain when he says take honor widows well so are there widows that are not really widows are there widows that are actually widows we're going to see that but the point first of all is that these are people that because of the society they, they, they live in they are without help and so it is the church's responsibility to take care of them we see that in acts 2 right where they shared all things in common we see that in acts 4 again about the church 
we see that even in Acts 6, where there was quarreling going on, and because widows were being neglected, right? And people had to, that's when the church set aside deacons to make sure that everybody was helped. A big part of the church's social structure is in taking care of people that don't have enough. Very important. I'm not going to go too much yet on this because this is not a pastoral class or anything, but it's it's something to always keep in mind. A big part of our lives as believers is caring for the helpless. And so even when we gather together, a big part of our society as a church, when I say society, I'm referring to the church, is helping those who don't have enough, who truly need help, right? And he goes on to start to explain who are really widows. Verse 4. If any widow has children or grandchildren, let those widows first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. If you have a highlighter, highlight that word first. It's so important. It says, let them first learn to show piety. The word piety is what you say, Bio, in the Greek. It simply means to show worship, to show piety or worship or respect. And so Paul is saying that if there's any widow in the church that has kids that are fight, that, that actually are making money, that are earning, it says that let them first learn to show their worship at home. How? By repaying their parents. So, Two things. Let me start from repaying parents. Of course, you can't pay them enough, right? Anyone who has brought a child into this world knows that it is more than money. The pain, the sacrifice, the the all that they go through. I mean, you can read, you can saturate your mind with all the things that can possibly happen during pregnancy. And yet, a woman decided to bear that risk. I said, you know what? It's worth it. For this coconut head, <laughs> I'm just joking. For this child that you're bringing into the world, not to mention all the sleepless nights when you were crying every night. Just ask your parents how much stress <laughs> you put them through, or when they had to take you through school, when they had to counsel, advise, feed you, and all of that. And so Paul is saying that when they are old and they don't have, um, they are not able to, let's say, work. In this case, more specifically, widows, right? But there's no one to take care of them. So it is your responsibility to taking care of your parents. But not only that, he says, this is where you should first learn to show worship. And he just goes back again to, to a simple principle that as believers, it's very easy to forget. But if you really understand what Jesus came to do, you should not. Which is that what? True worship is seen in our day-to-day lives. It's very easy to forget it, right? Like, just think about how big a deal your conduct is to God. Paul is saying that if they are believing children and grandchildren here, the first place they should learn worship is in taking care of their parents. Something so simple. How we act is worship never forgets it how you act as a friend how you act as a sibling how you act as a child how you act as a parent how you act as a worker an employee an employer a leader much more than any act of devotion 
reveals the state of your worship reveals what you actually think or how you view god how you view people so you are you are you are a person that you, you regularly take three days stretch prayer and fasting but you are selfish you've not learned worship you study your bible but you are a lazy worker you've not learned what worship really is you you claim to be devoted to all your church activities but you are quarreling with your neighbors you have a lot to learn you have a lot to learn and it's something i want you to always reflect on always reflect on my conduct my acts of forgiveness my acts of generosity my love walk says more about my worship than my spiritual acts of devotion it's something to always think about because in fact if you are a person who is constantly given to spiritual activities but there's no clear translation in your interactions with people it's a bad sign because it means that your heart is not as yielded to god as it should be you fall into the category of people that say that, that jesus describes as their mouths being near to god but their hearts being far away and so you can bore your eyes out as long as i am leaving i will always worship you like oh my god i want to live for you and you're crying and you're crying and you're like what a worship meeting but the next day comes your younger sister and you're just you just burst out in anger can't you see i'm doing this get out of my room (laughs) you have a lot to learn you've not learned what true worship looks like you've not learned what true worship looks like there was a prayer um couple years ago when i was like just brand new in the faith and i was reading reflecting on the epistles and this really stuck out to me and i usually prayed that and also meditated on like if jesus was an elder brother i mean he was how would he act god let me be that kind of brother to my siblings if jesus was a son which he was how would he act to his parents let me be that kind of child to my parents if jesus was working where i was working how would he how would he carry himself if jesus was for for those of you that are married if jesus was um a a husband or if if i was dating jesus or something like that if jesus was do you get how will he respond to scenarios that sets the template for what you should do that's what romans 12 is all about and we're going to get there but that is what like present yourselves i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercy of god that you present yourselves a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto god for this is your reasonable service or this is the right way to worship it is by taking the summation of your life and seeing it as something that has been changed by the spirit of god it was the same issue jesus had with the or god same thing had with the pharisees had with the with the hypocrites of israel's day he says that they were quick to offer sacrifices they were quick to tithe they were quick to 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 do all the rituals all the sacrifices but yet you're not kind you're not forgiving you you don't care for the poor around you you're not moved with compassion by the sufferings of others he says no it's all meaningless and all those things is the equivalent of our spiritual acts of devotion today. Don't be that person that we can see a clear sense of fervency in 
the church but it never translates to kindness to patience to forgiveness just being gentle to being generous amen i'll read that verse again it says let them first learn this that's what paul is saying before they come into the church and start showing their piety it says, let them first show it at home let them first show it at home same thing to you first of all let your piety start from home let it start from work let it start from those people that see you on a daily basis we might not see you as often let it start there think about those areas where you still need to grow and make changes amen so he, those are people that so again a person who is who is not really a widow is someone who still has someone to take care of her right and if that's the case he says let those people take care of her so that the church is not burdened with that responsibility and then he goes on in verse 5. It says, She who is really a widow and left alone, trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night. Right? So this is the description of someone who is a widow. Meaning, there's no one, no child, no husband, nothing. What, what, what else describes this kind of person? So number one, no one to help her. Of course, in today's world, it could be how a him, right? Um, it says she trusts in God and continues in prayer. So we see something like Anna um, in Luke, for instance, that she's constantly, she has given herself to spiritual devotion because there's nothing else for her in this world. And we saw things like that in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32 to 33, right? That if a person who is married is distracted between pleasing God and pleasing his spouse or her spouse, but a person who is not can focus all that time on acts of devotion alone. So, <coughs> sorry. So the first sign of someone who is really a widow is that no one is available to take care of her. The second sign is that she has dedicated her life and her time to serving and living for God. Now read verse 6. It says, but she who lives in pleasure is dead even while she lives. And so, first of all, Paul is saying that this is not the kind of widow we should be taking care of. The one who is still living for pleasure because they don't really need the help of the church. Anyways, the time they could have used for God, they are simply living for pleasure. But the second thing that I want to highlight, which applies to you more specifically, right, is when Paul says that this person is living for pleasure, he's not exactly saying that they are sinning right like they are not committing acts of sin they are not like stealing they are not uh, committing fornication they're not going around um uh insulting people they are simply living for pleasure but paul says that even that in itself is wrong is wrong and i i, I want to highlight that because we live in a world that seems to 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 describe that as the goal oh we should get to a point where we don't need money we just live for pleasure we see some descriptions like you say oh i just want a baby girl lifestyle i just want to chill 
<laughs> I want to be what's it? Oku Emi Oga. Have you heard it? So what do you do for a living? I take care of my husband and I chill. That's that's my goal. And the reverse. It's not only a it's not it's not a gender thing. Say so I just want a trust fund wife. I just want um <laughs> I just want to be at home doing nothing all day, chilling. Paul says anybody with that kind of heart or ambition is dead while they are alive. Because as you say, um, <laughs> is dead while they are alive. If all you want to do is say, I just want to chill. I want to relax and enjoy. Paul says, you are dead even though you are alive. And it, 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 it just paints a very clear message that as believers, we should realize clearly that life was made for more than the pursuit of pleasure. Ah, sorry, Daisy, no soft girl life for you. <laughs> not in Christ. God did not invite us to soft girl life <laughs> or to baby girl lifestyle. Say, so just take care of me. Or, uh, just um, Life was made for more than the pursuit of pleasure. So our goals are is never to get to a point. Yes, there is there is wisdom in building passive income and all those things, building financial structures to ensure that you are stable. This is not saying that God wants you to work, work in nine to five till the end of your life. That's not what I'm saying. This is not saying that God doesn't want you to be rich or that you shouldn't be wealthy enough, that money is not an issue. That's also not what I'm saying. This is talking about the desires of your heart. That you should never get to a point that all you want out of life is pleasure. Just if the moment you get to that point, in fact, some of you, not some of you, some people, their hearts are already there. They're just waiting for the money to just follow that lifestyle. They already, they are ready. <laughs> they are ready. For if that is the state of your heart, change. That the way you imagine your older years. It's just traveling from vacation spot to vacation spot. It sounds nice, doesn't it? Just reading by the beach, um, lemonade on one hand, a book in the other, just lying down in the cool resort. I say, oh, your husband says, baby girl, we've been here for like two months now. Let's check out somewhere else. And you pack your bag, travel to another continent, <laughs> rinse and repeat. It sounds exciting. But if that is, your, if that is all you want out of life, Paul says you are dead even while you are alive. Because there's still so much to do. At the end of the day, our lives are more than relaxation, enjoyment, and the pursuit of pleasure. He goes to tell you that that is not all you'll be doing in heaven. If you thought you'd just be chilling in heaven, I have bad news for you. But we'll get there um, when we do a brief discussion on revelations and heaven. <laughs> um, but yes... Uh, you will walk. <laughs> God created man. He says, take care of the garden and keep it. If at the end of all things, it will be a restoration of all that was lost. It goes to show you that there will be work to do. But anyways, I would, <laughs> let's, let's leave that aside. You will not just be chilling. That is not God's idea. For, that is not God's idea for anybody in this world. He didn't create human beings to just chill. <laughs> it's a content creation. You're not serious. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. Um, but yes, it's it's an important mindset to have. Never let yourself get to a point where all you desire 
is an endless pursuit of pleasure. Never let yourself look at what Solomon said. He said, "I, I examined everything. I, I had musicians. I had women. I had food. I had money." He says, "At the end of the day, it was meaningless." This is someone that that had gotten to a point where anything materially desirable, he had it, but he still didn't have a purpose for living. He still didn't have a purpose for living. And many people in the world, because of the goals they've set, have come to that same point where they realize that nothing material can really satisfy. Oh, I, I really want this job. I really, you get the job, you start to complain. Oh, I'm waking up early. Oh, my manager is in this. Oh, they say, if only I had a better paying job. You'll get that better paying job and there will still be problems. You say, oh, if only I had someone who foot all my bills. You will find the person that will foot all your bills and they will still... If your goals are constantly materialistic, you will never be satisfied and you will never truly live. That's what Paul is saying. <laughs> and so he's saying that any widow amongst you that is not using her time to, to spend with God. Says that one doesn't need the church's help. She still needs to learn what it means to really live because she's pretty much dead. She's pretty much dead. So reevaluate re- your desires, reevaluate your goals. What do you really want out of life? If there's a popular question we usually ask, if money was not an issue, what would you be doing? If your answer is chilling, <laughs> you need help. <laughs> I'm not the one that said it. It's Paul that said it. If money was not an issue, what would you be living for? Start living for it today. Live for the gospel. Find out how you can contribute to the spread of the gospel in your own way and start to live for that. Amen. So yes, have um, responsible financial goals. Work hard. No soft life for the believer. No, no, No soft life. Now or in the world to come. <laughs> no soft life. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> let's go on. It says, and these things command that they may be blameless. So that's the point. Command these things. Let it be clear. Command what? That people should take care of their parents. Command that parents specifically widows should live for god right command these things and he goes on verse 8 if anyone does not provide for his own or for today's context for his or her own and especially for those of his or her household he or she has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever first of all it says anyone who does not. It's not talking about, it didn't say cannot. So this is not to shame people that are financially struggling. This is talking about willingness, not ability. You have the ability to take care. It says, but I need a new Balenciaga. I need a new car. It says, why? It says, I just want it. It says, ah, can't you see that my watch is tearing? It says, ah, but your, your, your mother needs, um, it says, ah, no, 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 I, I'll, I'll take care of her after. It says anyone who lives like that 
you have denied the faith and you are worse than an unbeliever there's a book i want i'm planning to read soon i think it captures a bit of this because it's very easy for us to be like ah I'm saved by grace through faith alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Wow! Glory! (laughs) And to somehow forget that true faith informs a lifestyle to the extent that if that lifestyle is not there, the Bible gives us credible grounds to to question the, the validity of that salvation. This is one of such verses. They say, ah, I'm saved by grace alone. He says, ah, you, you left your mother to suffer and starve. So you have denied the faith. You are not saved. I don't care what you said. Paul says, you have denied the faith. You are worse than an unbeliever. You are worse. Be shouting grace. No, you have denied the faith. It goes back to what I said. That true Christianity is seen in conduct yes that's not what saves us but it is a very very reliable testimony of genuine salvation right paul is saying anyone who identifies with the church but chooses not to take care of their family this is worse than an unbeliever. because even unbelievers they still at least they can take care of their family jesus said even terrible people they love people who love them so what makes you different? Nobody needs to be saved to take care of their child you are, or to take care of their parents. You, you're having issues doing it and you are naming the name of Christ. Say, God forbid. God forbid. God forbid. It's something to think about. Does my life really reflect salvation? Am I, am I just as or worse than unbelievers? In any area, how many of you have met unbelievers, amazing people? They are so kind, so generous. They love people. And you're like, "Ah, I know me, I have the life of Christ, but I have a lot to learn from this person. I have a lot to learn. I have a lot to learn. That's what Paul is saying. That if if, if you can't take care of your own household, you've denied the faith. Right, And then he goes on. He says, don't let a widow under 60 years be taken into the number. And not unless she has been the wife of one man. So now he begins to be specific to Timothy for the time. And so a lot of people that argue that, oh, all you context people, all you cultural context people, you are misreading the Bible. Does this mean that even in today's world, number one, only widows should be taken? So if it's an old man that can't take care of you, we should not say, no, Paul said only widows. We're not taking care of you. Of course not. The reason he uses widows was because they didn't have anything to do in that society. Same thing with the age that he gives. It is specific for the time. A church today can look at their budget, look at the, the society and say, oh, maybe we need to start helping people from 50. Oh, maybe we need to start helping people that are 70 and above. This is specific to Timothy for the church in Ephesus. So he says, don't let a woman under 60, if she's under 60, let her, let her go and marry. And we're going to get there. <laughs> uh, <coughs> let her go and marry. Don't, don't take care of her. Don't take care of her. Right? But 
let's let me read a few verses and then we'll, we'll look into it. It says, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Verse 10. First Timothy 5, verse 10. Well, re- well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work, but refuse younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanting against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. A lot of stuff here. Let's let's unpack it. It's not that difficult, honestly. He's simply saying, first of all, if the widow is younger than 60, there's a high chance that they will marry again. So let's 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 even make it that let's encourage them to marry right off the bat. Not that we start taking care of them and then they get married and it's like, oh, all that money we spent on you, we could have spent it on someone else who actually needed it. It's just simple practical wisdom right and so <coughs> right so that's what he's saying he's not saying that if there's a widow younger than 60 that genuinely needs help that the church is going to let them go this is more talking about people that were in form of what we might call a salary because that's the same description that we're going to use for the elders it's are people that they're on the church's roster the church takes care of them it's not saying that if there's a 30 year old man that just lost his job and doesn't have anywhere to go, any food to eat, that the church like, you're not a widow, and you are younger than 60. I'm sorry. I'm I'm so, I wish, but I can't. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is talking about the people that the church should assume responsibility for. Right? And he says they should be widows over the age of 60. He says, not unless she has been the wife of one woman. Sorry. (laughs) Say what? (laughs) not unless she's been the wife of one man and of course like we talked about in first Timothy 2 that doesn't mean that if she has married twice the church can't take care of her there are situations like we talked about in first Corinthians where the spouse could have deserted her or where the spouse died and she remarried it's simply saying she was faithful she didn't commit adultery she didn't cheat on her husband and stuff like that he goes on to describe the kind of people the church should take care of similar to the qualifications of elders and deacons he says what they are known for their good works they've brought up children remember first timothy 2 when i was describing the roles of men and women in the church right it says they've brought up children well they've taken care of strangers so hospitality they've washed the saints feet referring to service and we're going to talk about that right now They've relieved the afflicted and they've diligently followed every good work. So Paul is saying, we're not just taking care of anyone here. If we're taking care of someone, they should be to the excellence of conduct as the elders and the deacons that we're already taking care of. So in their conduct, in their family, in hospitality, in service, in diligence, we can see that these are people that that we can trust to take care of they will not it won't come back to bite us and he talks about washing the saints feet i i um i know of certain communities that um take this very literally so that we should wash each other's feet i just want to make it clear i'm not going to let you touch my feet (laughs) i am not unless you're my wife 
of which I'm happily married. <laughs> Glory to God. <laughs> you are not, or I'm in a hospital, or I need to. You are not washing my feet. <laughs> this was a simple ancient practice, right? They lived in the Middle East. They lived in desert regions. They wore sandals. Their legs were usually dusty. Not only that, the way they ate, they have the food, the table where they ate from was very low to the ground. And they would all like lie down or like squat and just chill and eat. And so there was no way you were going to allow those dirty legs come near food. And so it was a common practice that whenever you go to visit someone, the same way you say, oh, leave your shoes at the door. It was common practice for, let's say, the wife or if you're rich, rich enough, slaves to wash the feet of the guests. It was something that depicted humility and service. So now, when you get to John 13, let's, let's look at that very quickly. John 13, 1 to 10. John 13, 1 to 10. This is the story of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. What was Jesus doing? Did he just want to say, ah, let me just, your feet are dead. Say all of you, when last did you, say Peter, when last did you have a bath? Come here, come here. Let's wash your feet. No. He was teaching a very, very important lesson that Paul goes on to highlight in taking care of widows. It says, John 13 verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, Jesus, verse 3 is very important, and we're going to see why. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with towel with which he was girded. Very important point. Why did I say verse 3 is important? So they just had dinner and Jesus knows that, oh, I'm about to die very soon. It says he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and then decided to wash his feet. It's a very beautiful narrative contrast because it tells you that even before Jesus stooped down, literally and figuratively, to serve his disciples, he knew who he was. There was a clear understanding of the dignity of his person. There was a clear understanding that, oh, I actually own all things nevertheless i will serve it's passing a very very simple message that a lot of times we assume that just because you serve it means you are lower than the person you are serving jesus or john through the actions of jesus makes it very clear that that's not the case if anything jesus knew that he was by identity person ability and power greater than all things it was with that knowledge he chose to serve. And so what that simply means is that if you find it too hard to serve, you don't know who you are. 
number one or you are insecure about who you are you think that somehow serving people reduces your worth you've not learned from jesus that's 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 why it's so important if you still wrestle with mindsets that if i'm caught serving if i live a life of service i still feel insecure i still feel like i'm less than the person i'm serving you need to renew your mind you need to renew your mind service doesn't in no way reduces the worth or the integrity of your character jesus knowing that all things had been given to him decided to reflect that by serving all by serving all and that's why he becomes the template for christian ministry that's why we say things like oh who will be great amongst you he must be your servant your great the greatest leader in the kingdom of god is the greatest servant is the person that is willing to use all that he is or she is to serve people and is not insecure about it knows that 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 changes nothing in how god views me amen and so what did he do he began to wash the disciples feet he cleaned it with towel and so peter like almost any sensible person if jesus began to wash your feet say ah lord i love that he calls him lord master are you the one washing my feet right it doesn't <clears throat> because from the world from the perspective of this world from a natural perspective it's the lord that is served it's the master that is served it's the one that is greater that should be served and many of us still think like that that oh don't you know who i am do you know how many years i have pastored this church how dare you <laughs> it says jesus answered and said to him what i'm doing now you do not understand but you will know after this meaning that whatever jesus was doing was pointing to salvation and i'm going to explain what that is but let's go on and peter <laughs> loud mouth said you will never wash my feet <laughs> and jesus answered him if i do not wash you you have no part in me peter then said again without thinking lord if that's the case don't wash just my feet wash my hands wash my feet and jesus said calm down if he who needs to be bathed needs only his feet to wash and is completely clean and you are clean but not all of you jesus is saying something very important and i don't want you to miss this when john 13 i read from verse 1 to 10 john 13 verse 1 to 10 he's saying something very 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 important and he's saying that no one can be saved without understanding and realizing that god served him and it's that same human pride a lot of unbelievers are still like peter what do you mean god died for me what do you mean god died for me and jesus is literally saying until you allow yourself to be served by god you can't receive salvation 
So Jesus in dying, because this becomes an analogy for the death of Jesus. So the whole washing refers to the cleansing by his death through faith in his sacrifice. And he's saying that you have to understand that God, I mean, Philippians talks about it. He was equal with God. He says he stripped himself and took upon himself the form of his servant. That's what this is all about. That's what this is all about. That you need to realize, it takes humility, first of all, to realize that God served you in salvation. Jesus, knowing who he was, decided to be spat on by all of creation that we might be saved. So that's the first point. Realize that in salvation, Jesus demonstrated great humility and service. And he requires us to be humble enough to receive it. You know, it takes a lot to, to allow someone bigger than you. Imagine if, um, I don't know, someone you really look up to says, ah, come, let me let me help you wash your clothes. They say, ah, please now, don't, don't embarrass. Don't embarrass me. I'll, I'll wash my clothes. I'll wash your own as well. <laughs> right? It's, it's natural. But Jesus is painting a message that if you are to receive what I've done, you need to change your view of leadership and service. That you need to realize that in God's eyes, the leader serves. That is not to say the leader is not worthy of honor, as we're going to see in many, many places. Oh, Jesus was honored by his disciples. In fact, it is because he was honored that Peter did not want him to wash his feet. But we need to receive the service of people. We need to allow them serve. That's what he's saying. That if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you have no part in me. But not only that, it then becomes a template. That at no point in our lives are we ever too big to serve those that need it. At no point. If Jesus, knowing that he had all things committed to his hands, was never too big to serve, in fact, he paid the ultimate service. He died for us. And he says, go and do likewise. John 13, 14. If I then, your Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Verse 16. I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. That's the message. That if Jesus, in salvation, you received the service of someone who was infinitely greater than you. And if truly you believe that, then the rest of your life will be spent serving people of all classes, of all categories. Whether they are better than you, whether you are better than them, it means nothing. You've been called to a life of service. Of service. Amen. I hope that makes sense. So it's not like an instruction for us to start washing literally washing each other's feet how do we wash each other's feet by serving one another by putting others first amen all right is that clear thumbs up if that's clear all right it makes sense good 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 let's go back to first timothy five First Timothy chapter 5. We're rounding up soon. Where are we? <laughs> oh, yes. So if she has done all this and this, so describing what the widow has done, 
It says, these are the kinds of people you should help. It says, if the widows are younger, don't, don't put them on the church's roster. Encourage them to marry. Why? Because there's a sense in which anyone who the church decided to take care of had made a commitment to the church that I will serve God all the rest of my life. Almost like a vow in that sense. And so when Paul says they now have condemnation because they have cast off their first faith, he's not saying that they denied Jesus by getting married. He's saying that they made a promise or a commitment to the church that church, I need help, right? And then two years later, he says, ah, I saw this young man the other day and we're getting married. <laughs> and it's like, you've allowed the church waste resources in a sense. You might as well have gotten married <laughs> earlier on. So he's just encouraging people. Where, where it says they've, they've cast off their first faith, he's referring to that vow, that pledge that they made to focus solely on God, Right? That's the, that's the idea. This is just little practical, like this is literally conversations that should be happening in a board meeting of a church. Like, okay, who should we help? This is how much we have. Who can we take care of? What are the criteria we should use? So he's saying, oh, don't, don't, if they're younger, encourage them to get married so that we don't start to help them and then they get married and then they have to take, they have to recant their pledge to stay devoted to the Lord and, and all of that, right? That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying, right? So, um, let's go on. <laughs> Not only that, he says, if they are younger, it says they would learn to be idle because they have so much time, so much energy, and there's nothing to do. He goes back to what we said. Chilling is not the will of God for your life in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Anyways, it says they would wander from house to house. And not only idle, but they, they become gossips. They become busybodies saying things which they ought not. Therefore, <clears throat> I desire that younger widows marry. Apologies, guys. I'll be much better next week. <laughs> um, younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, and give no opportunity for the adversary to speak reproachfully. So Paul is simply just speaking as a leader and full of the Spirit. Today, we're going to expect church leaders to do the same. Right? Again, it's that the church will be seen as poor reproach. Paul doesn't want a case where the church is seen as a place where um, there are young women who have nothing doing and they are just gossiping, playing around all day. It's a bad sign on the church. And we've talked about that at length in 1 Timothy 1 and 2. And he goes on, it says, For some have already turned aside after Satan, meaning they've left the teachings of the church and they've started living wasteful lives. They are playing around all day, they are gossiping, they are busybodies, maybe even sleeping around, stuff like that. That is what Paul, Paul is saying. Everyone be responsible. If you're young, go and marry again. If you're old, serve God, we'll take care of you. Simple. We just don't want people roaming around doing nothing. The church is not a ground for idleness. That's literally the summary, summation of everything we've read. Let's go on. Verse 16. It says, if any believing man or woman has widows, same thing let them relieve them and don't let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widowed so that's the conclusion right if anyone can take care of their widowed mother widowed grandmother take care of them so that they don't have to come to the church finances are limited let's be as effective as we possibly can and all of this just gives us an insight into what church administration looked like at that point in time 
right? Meaning that priority should always be given to those that don't have anything. Also, that before a family goes out into the outside world to start to form, oh, I'm a Christian, take care of your own. Take care of your own. It also shows that before the church starts to go out with ambitious desires for the gospel, the church should always ask itself, how intentional are we about the lives of those who don't have anything? It makes no sense to start doing humanitarian efforts when there are still people struggling in your congregation. Where is your priority? Where is your priority? The church has and should always be a community where believers who have no help can find help. Can find help. If you are ever going to start a church, keep that in mind. (laughs) Anyways, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. So this goes back to what we saw just a couple verses ago. Verse 3, honor widows. Let elders be counted worthy of double honor. This is simply the idea of taking care of the financial needs of people. So the church roster should take care of widows, but it should also, perhaps even more so, take care of the leaders, especially those who labor in word and in doctrine. And it makes it makes sense. The church is filled with people that are working. These people, go; they have nine to fives. They are employed. But here are pastors and teachers who perhaps have spent all their time studying the word. Like what, what they said in Acts 6, for we'll give ourselves, right, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So these are people that have dedicated their time and their resources to teaching, to learning, to preaching. It makes sense that their brethren should support them. It's the same thing that happened in the Old Testament. Jesus, oh sorry, God, through Moses, so that the Levites would not have any particular piece of land. But let every tribe take a tenth and give the proceeds to them because they are spending all their time cleaning the temple, taking care of the temple. They need to eat. And they're not, they not farmers. They're not hunters like the rest of you. And so your responsibility is to take care of them. So there's that same parallel in the new covenant that there are people in the church that have dedicated their lives to laboring in the word and doctrine and to ensure that people are growing, people are being taught. So much so that perhaps they don't have the flexibility to have a full-time job anymore. Paul says they deserve to be taken care of. They deserve to be, of course, in a good conscience, you can be like Paul or they can be like Paul and refuse it. They can say, you know what? We're still going to work and we're still going to do this preaching thing. It's hard, but we will do it, right? They can be like Paul and do that, but they are refusing it, right? Don't never let it seem like, oh, eh, eh, do we have to? No, no, no. It is their right. It is real work and it should be seen as such. Right, that's what he goes on to say. He says, For the scriptures say, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Paul quotes the law, literally the same thing, that 
people that work deserve to be paid. These people are actually working and they deserve to be paid. So, when we look at the way the church is, I mean, it's something I usually tease my friends. If someone should message me today and say, you know what, man of God, I've just been thinking and the Lord put it on my heart. Don't, you don't have to do a night five. Whatever you need, I'll take care of you. Ah, I'll resign tomorrow. Or Monday morning, I'll say, I'm done. I will serve God. <laughs> oh my goodness. But what he's saying is that the church should recognize that this is really work. This is really work. And if it is work, they deserve to be rewarded. Again, it's not necessarily about um, they are somehow better or they have an access to God that the rest of the church doesn't know. It is about function and role. Not everyone can. Not everyone has a luxury. So there are certain people, certain elders in the church that have given up all else to give themselves to pastoring or to teaching or to laboring in the church. And even in today's world, it's not just even the pastors. We have all sorts of roles. There are people in charge of the worship team, people in charge of children's ministry, people in charge of different expressions of a church that depending on how big and how well they do the work can actually be more demanding than a 95. There are some of you that have served churches in capacities and you know how draining it can be. You know how demanding, even administrative work. Mommy Anne, maybe you can do a 10-minute <laughs> sermon. The administrative work of the body of Christ. <laughs> it is a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And there is there should be a recognition of that. Not just in gratitude, but also in taking care of them. You, you just, you just uh, go to work, come back and fellowship with the brethren. Say, wow, I thank God for the fellowship of the brethren. But there are many people working hard behind the scenes. There are pastors spending hours and hours in the word and in prayer to make sure that people are growing. There are people doing all sorts of things. We ought to honor and recognize these people, right? So it's not a case of, oh, the pastor somehow has an access to God that the rest of the church doesn't know. It's just division of labor. The pastor is going to be the one that will spend his time spending hours in prayer and the word that maybe other people in the church might not have that luxury of time. But if that's the case, then they should be commensurated for their efforts. I hope that makes sense. All right, let's let's round up. It says in verse 19, he starts to talk about how to deal with misbehaving elders in the church. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Right? Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. So what he's saying is that don't be quick to punish an elder just because someone said. Right? Because because they are elders, a lot of people will say a lot of stuff. And so there should be great care in how you deal. We say, oh, this pastor did this and this. Don't be quick to accuse them of it, right? Because if the accusation turns out to be false, it's going to cause a lot of harm. There's a real sense. And many of you can probably relate to this in how the fall of a spiritual leader, it hits different. 
it affects people more than other. In fact, even unbelievers can be affected. Say, ah, but this guy was a pastor now. Look at what he's doing. The reputation of spiritual leaders, it, it, it's, it's, it's so sacred to the church. And as a church, we should learn to protect it. It says, don't be quick to receive their... And it's not saying that, oh, if it's true, you now dismiss. No, no, no. We're going to get there. He's simply saying, don't be quick to judge, to condemn, or to act out just because one person said something against a spiritual leader. And it just goes to show it's a big deal. There are people that their faith was severely shaken because someone they trusted took advantage of them or did something that they could never believe that a man of God would ever do. And it's true. That's just how it is. They are meant to be Christ's representatives to us. And so if they fall, it's a big deal, which is why there are many clear standards before they can even be appointed in the first place. That's why Paul would tell Timothy that be careful who you lay your hands on so you don't share in the sins of these people. Right? It is rather let there be two or three witnesses the equivalent of that is do thorough investigation if someone comes and says oh this pastor abused this person on one hand don't disregard it that ah it's not ah, ah this part you are lying no don't do that we've seen things like that happen and we've seen how damaging it can be for the person involved he's saying thoroughly investigate thoroughly investigate thoroughly investigate what what exactly happened and it says if it's true if it's true rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear so that means that if there's a leader who clearly people have said this leader did this and this and it turns out to be true because of the standard they have set themselves on even James said that teachers will be judged more harshly, right? It says, rebuke, correct them, use them as an example so that other people will not do the same thing, right? And then he goes on, it says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Don't be partial to the leaders, don't be partial to anyone, right in managing the church of god be honest be honest he goes on in verse 22 don't lay hands on anyone hastily so you don't share in their sins keep yourselves pure yes so public rebuke toyosi yes public rebuke and the reason it's public rebuke is because the sin itself is already public remember in this case there are two or three witnesses or three people can say yes this man did this so it's not even a private affair anymore there's already word probably growing there are rumors already that ah this pastor did this thing if it is found out to be true paul says what correct them in the presence of all (laughs) correct them in the presence he didn't necessarily say strip them of their eldership he didn't say kick them out of the church no of course if they are repentant we welcome them back. The same forgiveness we've received in Christ, we extend. But there should be clear measures to correct. <clears throat> Does that make sense? Oh, no, no, not before the general. The church has no business. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> yes, the church, 
Wait, what verse? So, Tosi put it in the chat. What verse? Let me answer Bulu's question. When it says in the presence of all, it's in the presence of the church. It's in the presence of the church. It's in the presence of the church. Um, okay, I would, I would explain. Do not lay hands. That's where I am. But I just tracked back. It's talking about correcting them before the church. <laughs> yes, not as. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, before the church. Um, of course, if what the pastor or the elder did is against someone who is not in the church, then you have to restitute before that person. Let's say a pastor abused someone, right? Sexually abused someone that's not even a member, maybe an unbeliever. You have to own up to it to that person and their family. If it's an issue, if it's a case that has become public, where like we've seen in many recent times because of social media, the world knows as well. The church, um, yeah. So I'm going to get that's what, that's exactly where I'm getting to. If there's a sense in which even the world is aware of how badly things have gotten, the church does have a responsibility to addressing it before, in quote, the world, because the world is now involved, right? And that doesn't mean bashing the elder. That's not divide fighting against each other. The simple thing to do, it's it's simple. Accept that what was done was done. Don't deny it. Express genuine, uh, like, apologies. Promise that the issue will be dealt with in the church according to the church. And whatever reparations need to be done, you do it and you move on. Of course, the world might not understand, the world might drag, but... The church's responsibility is to simply show that we recognize this is wrong. We're not going to make an excuse and we're going to address it. Simple. The church doesn't have any business um, trying to then defend church discipline, quoting versus say, ah, do, do, do you get my point? If it has gotten so bad that it is public to even unbelievers, then the church does need, I, I, I do think that there is wisdom in making a public statement of of what should be done but here for for this context when it is before the presence of all it's before the presence of the church right um any other questions as far as that is concerned okay guess it makes sense makes sense it makes sense it makes sense all right and so it says, do nothing without partiality, whether it's in how you discipline elders. It says, don't be partial about it. And then it says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. The context is very simple. Before it's, it's laying hands refers to ordination, right? Paul and the elders laid hands on Timothy and then sent him to Ephesus. It simply refers to appointing, when you lay hands on someone, at least in this context, it refers to appointing a representative to carry on in your stead. And so, Paul laid hands on Timothy to ordain him as a minister in his stead to the church in Ephesus. The elders in Antioch laid hands on Paul and Barnabas to appoint them as representatives of the church to the missionary field they were going to. 
That's what it means. And so when Paul says, don't lay hands on people hastily, he's simply saying, don't be quick to appoint leaders in the church. Why? So that you don't share in their sins. Meaning, if these are people that are not qualified and you appoint them, whatever damages they do in that office, you have a part to play because you did not prove their character. You didn't trust, sorry, you didn't test them. You were in a rush. Maybe because of zeal or in quotes, grace, you felt they were ready. Meanwhile, there was a lot that needed to be done. We've talked about this um, in 1 Timothy 3. He's simply saying you must evaluate, you must test and prove their character before you appoint them. And that's what he's saying. Don't share in their sins. Keep yourself pure. Keep yourself pure. That's, That's simply what he's saying. That don't be quick. Oh yes, zeal is not. I think we talked about that um, at length in First Timothy three. If you remember, I said if anyone wants to be a bishop, he desires a good work. Nevertheless, it's not enough to say God use me. Can God actually use you? <laughs> Can, Can God actually use you? Um, but that's the point. Don't be quick. Don't be quick to appoint leaders. Don't put them in a position where they would misuse that office and by implication, it would bring shame on you that brought them into that office. So you brought a thief into the sacred office of of Christ. You brought an abuser to taking care of God's sheep. God would also hold you accountable. God will hold you accountable. God will hold you accountable. It's also the reason why I, I know like whenever I'm invited to teach, I always start by appreciating and I point it out that it is not it is not a small thing for someone to say come and minister to my congregation because whatever you say God would hold that person accountable God would hold that person it's it's kind of like the way in offices and a lot of you can relate to that right let's say someone says oh please refer me to this job please refer me to this job. The reason referrals work is because your company trusts you. You are one of them and they're like, okay, you should have this company's best interest at heart. So I trust that you will bring someone that will be a good fit for this company. So in a way, your referral says a lot about you. Or for instance, if someone says, let's say you're talking to someone and say, ah, I want you to meet my friend. I, I really think you guys would be a good, you're trying to pair people up. Say, I want you to meet this friend of mine and that friend now messes up. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's second-hand embarrassment, right? Because you were the one that referred that person. You said, ah, you, you, you know, like, why did you, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And it's, so what that then happens is your reputation is damaged <laughs> because nobody's good. That person will not trust the next person you bring. It's the same thing. Don't be quick to ordaining people because how they function in that office would say a lot about you as well. So Paul is just giving Timothy wise advice. Before you set someone up, test them, prove them. And then he goes on, verse 23. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. (laughs) Just because I would explain. It's like a stone. (laughs) Don't drink, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake. And your frequent infirmities. Highlight that word frequent (laughs) infirmities. 
And the first thing I want to say is that if your theology cannot accommodate this verse, you need to change. <laughs> like it just shows that whatever you believe about healing is not complete. If your theology cannot accommodate the fact that Paul, <laughs> Paul, not me, Paul, is telling Timothy, man of God like Paul, the same Paul, like I saw on someone's status today, that snake bit and he just shook inside fire and nothing. Or they say, ah, snake, what is venom? <laughs> what is venom? The same Paul that through his handkerchiefs, people were healed, is telling Timothy through a letter. He didn't say, Timothy, you are sick so often. Be healed in the name of Jesus. <laughs> never again, never again. <laughs> And that's the end, and he just goes on talking. <clears throat> that's not what he does. No, it shows that first of all, Paul knows that Timothy has a certain stomach issue that causes him to be sick often, both in person and both virtually. Paul is saying, What? Timothy, please remember to drink a little. Don't just drink water, Timothy. Drink a little wine <laughs> because you are always falling sick. <laughs> It will help your stomach. Drink a little wine. Same thing. Timothy is not Timothy is not your everyday beloved. Timothy is going to lead a work in Ephesus. He's a man of God. He's a man of God. And if you are somehow uncomfortable with that and what that means for divine health and divine healing, it simply means that there's a lot you still need to learn. Maybe you've taken the promise of divine healing a bit too far. Say, hey, is that possible? Yes. <laughs> but before I even get there, let's just even start from just the basics. So Paul is, Paul is giving, exactly, I, I'll get there. Paul is giving general instructions. Paul is giving general instructions of ministry and all of a sudden, boom, like a father, he reminds him, take care of your health. Take care of your health. Dear believer, all 35 on you of this call, take care of your health. If Paul was not too spiritual to tell him that as part of my instructions, I want you to take care of your health. It shows that there's nothing, there's nothing carnal. I, exactly. There's nothing wrong. That means in a believer's conference or in a, in fact, in a minister's conference, I should be able to remind pastors, believers, sleep well. It's better exercise. <laughs> Go for a morning jog. Take a little wine. <laughs> so you say, eh, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> because what this literally translates to, and people are, and like they said in the chat, it's spot on. Whatever Timothy had, maybe it's some stomach infection. I don't, I don't know. But wine helps relieve that. It's, it's kind of like saying, Take your medication. Because I know you, you always used to have this tummy pain. You take your medicine. Don't forget to take your medication. And for Paul to remind Timothy, means Timothy was like many of us. We like to form, I don't need to take my medication. Say water is fine. Water, Paul says, Timothy. <laughs> Timo, my son, take wine. Don't forget to take a little wine. Don't forget to take a little wine. Some of you to say, ah, take this drug. And you say, no, drug. Me, drug. 
temple of God. Can you bring a drug into the temple of God? You're not serious. <laughs> you still have a lot to learn. You have heard it. Take your painkillers. <laughs> like, it's really not that big of a deal. Am I, I, is, is that somehow contradictory with trusting God for healing? Of course not. Of course not. It reminds me of, uh, was it Hezekiah that had a boil and said he was going to die? And then God said, no, you know, and he cried, he wailed, and God is like, no, Allah, I'm bad at 18 more years. And what did Isaiah say? Did Isaiah say, you are healed? He said, take um, certain leaves, ground them, rub it on the boil, something like that, and the boil will go. That's medicine. God used medicine to heal Ezekiah, <laughs> in case you're not aware. And so it's not a lack of faith to take drugs. If there's, <laughs> it's, yes, it can, be, it's, it can be extreme where you only trust drugs. And you don't you don't realize that ultimately it's still in the providence of God that you're healed. There are people that have taken drugs and nothing happened, right? But taking medication, having surgeries, is not in contrast to divine health. It's not in contrast to healing by God. God uses both natural and spiritual and supernatural means to heal. And it's weird because we don't have we don't have um we don't have issues with that in certain other areas. How does God provide for you, for instance, now? Through your job. He gave you a nine to five. That is how God is meeting. He says, my God shall supply or my needs. How is God to apply your needs? He gave you a job, work, and your salary. That's a natural means. It's a natural way that God has provided for needs to be met. Are there times that God can, beyond the natural Let's say provide a job that let's say you are struggling and through favor you get a job that you've been looking for for a while or um someone just blesses you financially of course but what is god's de facto way of taking care of your financial needs is by working <laughs> as in as you say god i want to visit my father oh yeah book a ticket fly and go and visit your father <laughs> don't don't let's not let's not be people that actually think it's either poor theology or immaturity or a combination of both that we tend to reduce or yes it's actually reduce the acts of god to merely supernatural things you don't see god's hand unless it's supernatural adam was lonely god did not plug a hole in his heart god gave him a wife so you are lonely go and marry <laughs> say i'm so lonely god heal this loneliness in my heart Go and make friends. Go and marry. That's how God has designed to take care of your loneliness. Am I making sense? Does it make sense? Don't be that believer that until something is supernatural, you don't think God is involved. That's not, that's, that's not it. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. God is as much involved in the natural because he created the sunrises by his decree even the natural occurrences of this life were designed by god and so god is very much active in both the natural and the supernatural in case you are not aware it is for that reason why there are many natural things in this world that we use medicine is simply the application of plants and all to cure diseases so god is not against medicine any more than god is against you having a nine to five right so don't don't limit yourself. You say until I wake up perfectly sound, God has not come. 
simple drug would have done the same thing. Yes, yes. So the wine there was for medicinal purposes. Yes, I think pretty much every theologian agrees. It did something to soothe the pains in his tummy. Whatever that was, I don't know. Was it an ulcer? I don't know. There's no details. We just know that Timothy had frequent tummy issues that drinking wine or mixing wine with water. And it's not just for Timothy. It was a common practice then that drinking wine with water, it helped to relieve pains in the tummy. Simple. That, that, it's, it's that simple. It's really not, there's nothing to, and this is OG Paul telling younger man of God, Timothy, this. Like I said, if your theology cannot accommodate this, then you should be very careful. And I've talked about this at length in previous teachings. And so if you are still curious, listen to the teaching on heaven and earth. I started by talking about how God interacts with suffering and sickness and pain. Um, I, I talked about it in James 1. I talked about it in Hebrews 12. Is sickness God's will? No. Never a thousand times, no. Can and should we ask God for healing? Yes. A thousand times, yes. Through scriptural and historical records, I'll get to your question, Theotoyosi. Do we always see that happen, at least instantaneously? No. How should we respond to that? By trusting his goodness and his wisdom. Does that mean that while we trust and while we wait, we should not apply medication? Of course we should apply whatever can help. Go ahead. It doesn't have anything against trusting God. Exactly. So yes, pray, go to the hospital. God forbid you get diagnosed of cancer. Start your care. Pray about it. And if 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 chemo is the next step, go and do your chemo. Still pray. And how many people have done chemo and nothing happened? So yeah, that's just the world we live in. As far as understanding, can we in certain cases choose to practice faith for divine healing apart from medicine? I think ultimately it depends on... It depends on what your understanding is and depends on the conviction of God's spirit in you, right? And what do I mean by that? First of all, you should be well-educated in the scriptures to know that medicine is not an act of doubt, right? It's it's very important. I just want to, because of the culture we grew up in, that's why we have issues with this. It's very important you know that just because you choose to get medication does not somehow mean you don't trust God. If you are sure that's not where that desire is coming from, and you can actually see that through prayer, there is a genuine conviction not to go for surgery or whatever, then by all means, I trust, I hope your convictions are actually built on genuine spiritual conviction. Because there are people that have died <laughs> under the name of, I don't want surgery, it's not God's will for my life. Meanwhile, it was either a cover-up for fear or a cover-up for ignorance where they thought that God was going to somehow do it supernaturally and was not going to use medication as though medication robs them of the testimony they would have shared, right? And so if that's not where you're coming from, but there's a genuine conviction in your heart that God wants, God is going to step in, um, then sure, trust, trust in what he has said, but be careful. Trust in what he has said, but be sure, again, test all prophecies, test all words, 
be sure that that is actually God's will. Other than that, I see no reason why you can't prayerfully, even through natural means, trust God for healing. Right? Um, very important. Very important. There are, there are cases where we even see a mix of both. What do I mean by that? I was listening to a teacher and he was talking about how he had a very serious ailment. I can't remember what it, ha- what it was, but he was not able to walk anymore. Right? And the doctor said through therapy and all of that, it's going to take like a year plus before he's able to use his legs again. And the parents called the church and they prayed for him. Right? They prayed for him. He didn't walk the next day. <laughs> he was still taking his medications, going for therapy. But in four months, he was able to walk again. And the pediatricians, all of them were surprised. They're like, this is not normal. It's not meant to take this short. So we see what God did in that instance. He sped up even a natural process. He didn't boycott it. He sped it up. And so there, there are many instances It could be solely supernatural. You wake up, boom, no trace, no need for any form of medication. Sometimes it could be a speed up of a natural process. Sometimes it could be a full-on natural recovery. My point is, your own is to trust God and use whatever he has made available, right, to get yourself better. That's, That's simple. Unless, like you said, dummy, there's a case where because it's not a case of i don't think do you get so i want you to understand and that's why i use the example of work when we say practice sometimes you can say oh i don't want to use drug i trust god to heal me it's the equivalent of saying i don't want to work in nine to five i trust god to provide for my finances do you get we don't see it that way and that's why we run into issues but if you think about it if if someone said that to you what would you tell them say ah say brother I, I noticed that you're always like you need provision. Why not get a job? I said, no job. What is a job? It says the lilies of the field do not labor, do not toil. Am I not more precious than them? I will trust God. Provide for mine. You <laughs> oh God. <laughs> you are very ignorant. You are putting God in a very uncomfortable position because you are using his word against them. It's the it's the same thing. Say, brother use your medication say no do you you see that what's like there's literally no difference um so i i want us to understand that (laughs) at least you see a um, scriptural precedence here if you're not against working you shouldn't be against medication god uses both to take care of you (laughs) all right um hmm do you continually pray till you see the answer? You continually trust God after praying initially, especially when it comes to praying for people. I actually answered this in those teachings combined. I don't know which one of them, but what I said is um, there's a place for trusting God to heal. And that is that is consistent with his character. And scripturally, I see no reason. You say I'm new. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> scripturally i see no reason to not believe for a healing like to not to ever stop right the widow sorry the woman with the shovel for 12 years was praised that even after 12 years she kept believing um it says ask the, the word there literally translates to keep on asking 
and you would receive. And so I do think there's a place to continually trust God for the healing. It's what we do in the time of waiting that makes all the difference. And so um, I don't think, uh, I don't think, yes, I, I hope that answers your question. I think we can keep on trusting God. And even if we die without seeing the answer, we can trust his goodness and his wisdom still. Trust his goodness and his wisdom still. Um, if I go into the lengthier version of this answer, it will take a while. So I'd recommend you listen to the teaching on heaven and earth, just the introduction part. Um, and then maybe James 1, Hebrews 12. I think they would answer those questions. Anyways, let's wrap up. It says, Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Paul is simply continuing what he said in verse 22. It's almost like he was talking in verse 22. He deviated, said, I stroll this boy, take your drugs. And then he continues in verse 24. What he was talking about, about appointing people and about um, introducing people to ministry. That there are some people that their bad behavior is very clear. We can tell that, ah, this one, <laughs> what you're doing is wrong. He says, but there are some people that you don't, you don't know the things they are doing until much later. He says the same thing about good people. That there are people that they are good works. Everyone can see that, ah, this one is a good guy. But there are some that you don't see their good works in public. Let's say they are praying. Let's say they are generous. But it's between them and God. What is the lesson to draw from this? It's simply saying, don't be quick to judge a person. Rather, allow time. With time, everyone's character will be revealed. It goes back to what we were saying in verse 22. Don't be quick to appointing leaders in the church. So that's what he's explaining. Give it time. Through testing, through circumstances, with life, the true natures of their hearts and their characters will be revealed. All right? And we can apply that to relationships. We can apply that to friendships. You can apply that to marriage, anything. With time, a person's true colors <laughs> will show. Will show. So that's 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 pretty much um, that. All right? So that's First Timothy 5. Just general church practical instructions around taking care of widows, taking care of elders, rebuking elders, rebuking people in the church. Yeah. Any questions? Does it make sense? Any 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 issues whatsoever? Speak now or you can't forever hold your peace. You can reach out to me in private. Dami, please go ahead. Yeah, um, it's similar to the question um, I asked. Mm. Uh, it's like you're praying for someone or praying for yourself. Mm. And after like praying, maybe like the next time you're praying, you know, um, like thanking God for what he has done. Like that's what you prayed for. Mm. Then would it be wrong if like four days later, you're not praying, not like, exactly saying thank God that you've done it. But like, God, I don't know. Like, does it, does it, does it like, what's the word? It's um, doubt or wavering um, belief. Mm. I yeah. guess I guess the first question would be good question by the way. These are more like 
practical experiences of healing. Why were you thanking God? That's the first question I would ask. Um, because of I don't know in the word, and then you trust that God heard you when you prayed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Um. So, to be sure, I understand your question. It's like let's say you were trusting God for maybe healing or anything actually, and then you felt that okay, it's done right and then you're thanking god that god i may not see it yet but i know you've heard me and i i i know i've i've received all i've asked for and then two weeks later nothing has changed and then you go back in place of prayer and now you want to start you are struggling between should i ask god again or should i just say will i feel but i've already thanked god am i doubting that it has happened or should i ask afresh right um <laughs> that's what you're asking right like what is the ideal response there yes good good awesome and it's very practical i'm sure if you were raised in a school of faith atmosphere i'm sure we can all relate to this um i don't mean like literal like educational school i just mean like a body of christ or christian knowledge that centers strongly around faith i'm sure it's something we can all relate to um, I'm no exception. It's <laughs> the same thing. I think um, just a couple thoughts. As usual, it really depends on the person. It depends on what God is doing in that time. So there's no one size fits all answer, but there are a couple things to bear in mind. The first one, like I said, is why were you thanking God? <laughs> is it is it just um, as an act of faith? I thank you, God, because I know you've heard me. I thank you. I thank you. And you're, in a sense, forcing yourself to believe that he has heard. There is, there, there is, there is a clear sense that, yes, God hears. As a believer, God hears you when you call on his name. Right? God hears you when you call on his name. Um, it's clear. It's very clear. Does that then mean that because God hears us, we only ask once. No. Again, this is a case where knowledge usually fights our experiences. And that's why everything ultimately rests on knowledge. Your Christian experience is so tied to what you know to be true. Paul knew that God hears. In fact, Paul, <laughs> it was the apostles that said it. When, whenever we ask in his name, although it was John, but Paul knew that very well. Whatever we ask in his name, he hears us. And if he hears us, we can be sure that we'll receive what we have asked. But Paul paid, prayed three times for the same thing. For the same thing. Is it that, did Paul somehow think God did not hear him the first time? Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. Same thing with Jesus, the Son of God, going to the cross. He prayed three times. If it's possible, let this cup pass over me. He didn't just pray the first time and say, God, I thank you because you've heard me and I'm done. <laughs> he knew that he still had to pray again. Does that mean God didn't hear him the first time? No. No. So don't somehow assume that you have to somehow thank God to force your mind to think that he has heard you. He heard you. Even be said, even before we ask, he knows, before you even uttered, he knows what, what you want to say. So this is not a case of God hearing or not. So if we don't thank God 
That's part. Oh, God has said so, therefore I have. No, no, no. It shows that there's something more happening in the place of prayer that we should be very aware of. Which brings me to the second thing. Right? In both the case of Paul and the case of Jesus, they kept praying. Even the story God used to describe the woman and the unrighteous church said she kept asking. The the friend kept knocking until he said, even though I'm wicked, just because of your persistence. There's something God is working in us in prayer that is much more than getting what we ask for. And many times we miss that because we are so focused on getting what we asked for. And so the answer to Jesus's prayer was not, it is possible, it is not possible. Remember, the prayer point was, God, if it is possible, let this cup pass over me. The answer to that prayer was not, this cup will pass, or this cup will not pass. The answer to the prayer was strength to go. Do you see that? Same thing with Peter. I'm sorry, with Paul. That take this infirmity, sorry, take this stone in the flesh, before people will misunderstand me. Take this stone in the flesh away. It says three times I asked. At the third time, I received an answer, which was what? My strength is made, in my weakness, God's strength is perfected. Therefore, I'll boast in my weakness. That was the answer to the prayer. And so, we don't somehow assume that there's such a template. We miss out on a lot. It's called, um, the pastor I listened to years ago, he called it Adventures in Prayer. Where we somehow think that there's such a template as, oh, I'll first start by, and there's wisdom to those templates. But at the end of the day, you're relating with someone, right? It's not a poster, uh, something like, it's not that, well, I'll pray about it and then I just thank God. We pray until our convictions on that issue change. That can happen the first time. It can happen the 10th time. Elijah prayed seven times for the same thing. Let rain fall. He kept praying. Pray, check, pray, check, pray check pray check he, he kept on praying and so there should be that realization that we pray until we know that like rotimi said in the chat our convictions on that issue has changed our convictions on that issue changing does not mean that the issue itself has changed in the physical right and so you are right dami there can be a time that as you pray you get a note of victory and you know that this is done. It might not happen the first time you prayed. It might not happen the second time you prayed. But when it does happen, hold on to that note of victory. Hold on to that note of victory. However, there can be times that you pray, 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 and you don't feel that note of victory. Rather, you're just stronger, like Peter or Jesus, right? Meaning, like in that case that thing you're praying about might not change per se but God is doing something else you should be discerning enough don't just start saying God I thank you I thank you as if you are brainwashing yourself to believe that God is going to change it no you should be discerning enough to know what God is doing in that moment that's another thing but then the third thing I want to touch on is vulnerability in the place of prayer and we somehow see this like Again, because of the cultures we grew up in, we are very, um, it doesn't come naturally to us. We somehow think vulnerability in the place of prayer is doubt. And it's not true. 
just read the book of Psalms. David is like, God, how far? You promised me this, this. He says, Any, everywhere I look, there are enemies. And David would say, nevertheless, I will trust you. So it means that there should, God wants us to be so vulnerable with him that we're like, God, two weeks ago, I, I, I really believe that I got this note of victory. But there's nothing happening. What's going on? And you, you, pour, that, you pour that frustration out to him don't god is not the person you should be hiding your feelings from like it doesn't even make sense to start with <laughs> he sees it so whether or not you say it he, he can't see how you're feeling do you get my point and so just like david just like david there should be nothing wrong we should not feel that we're somehow people of lesser faith because we believe that god was going to do something and a month later, a year later, it's like, ah, but nothing has changed. Go back to, who else? Who else will you go to, actually? Go back to God, like, God, how far? How far? Right? There's nothing wrong with that. And so let's not, let's not reduce prayers to this transactionary, robotic, um, military performance that we have to somehow do to make sure that God acts. No, God is your father. He's not, uh, you're not, you're not putting up an act for him. Learn to trust him. Learn to, to, in the place of prayer, stay until there are clear convictions in your heart. And even when those convictions don't seem to materialize, go back to him. Go back to him. All right. So no, I don't think it's a thing of doubt. Like, of course you can be like, even the, someone told you, says, God, I believe. Help my own belief. Like, that's how real you can be with God. God, two weeks ago, I really believed you were going to do this. Right now, and you're just talking to God, and you're praying, I'm struggling. Help me to stay firm. Or it's prayer. That's literally why we pray. You can't go to God and before me, I'm strong. You go there to receive strength. So, let's be very careful that this perception of faith we have does not turn us to hypocrites before God. That's where this phrase, I'm strong, came from. I really don't like it. Where you are clearly sick, where you're like, how oh, you I'm strong. But it became so funny that people now translate I'm strong to, they say, I'm strong. They say, ah, belle, I hope you feel better soon. What's the point? Who are we, who are we deceiving? Who are we deceiving? Right? You say, oh, I'm not feeling too well, but I'll be fine. I, I trust God. I'll be fine. There's nothing, it won't kill you. <laughs> you are not feeling fine at the moment. All right. So, um, I don't even think it's pride per se. I just think it's it's just Christian lingo at this point in time where the same way we say it is well <laughs> to everything. It's just, oh, I'm strong. But I'm strong has now come to mean I'm sick. So, you might as well have just said I'm sick. <laughs> why, why are you saying I'm strong? And that's different from holding on to the promises of God that despite how I feel, I know that by the grace of God, I will be fine. Of course, as I've taught you guys, you can't use let the weak say, <laughs> I am strong. That's not what that verse means at all. In case you don't believe me, assignment, go to that. Just look for your Bible where it says, let the weak say I'm strong. Read it in a, in a modern translation and read the entire chapter. It will be very clear that that has nothing to do with positive affirmations. Um, but yes, I hope that answers your question, Dami. Yes, yes, it does. Thank you very much.
You're welcome. Thank you. Very good question. Any other question? Um, thank you. Thank you for that question. Can you hear me, Chloe? Yes, we can. Okay, and thank you for that wonderful answer. Like me, like that's just that was very amazing. Um, so my question is, um, I know we're talking about like relating to elders, but like I wanted to understand the term that is covered under the elders. And apologies if you probably mentioned this in other teachings and I haven't caught up on them. But does that relate to like ministers as well? So for example, like I don't mean pastors, pastor, but you know how we have like a lot of ministers in church yeah. that yeah. so does that relate to ministers as well? Um yes. So I guess from verse 17, the general idea around eldership are people who are leaders in the church and i guess that's why there's that caveat especially those who labor in word and doctrine um i i i do believe that this refers to a sense of church leadership people that are responsible for discipleship growth um and i i think if you listen to first timothy 3 qualifications for elders and deacons i i talked about it a bit where it's leadership um of course there's because of context time times church structures the definitions may not exactly translate like the, the terminology rather but the role is still pretty much the same a deacon is a leader in the church who is responsible for the more administrative aspects to kind of support the elders with like responsibilities more day-to-day responsibilities the elders are leaders who are more um involved with general the the general administration of a church right and so that covers a huge sphere of people in today's church structures right um so you could say the head of follow-up for instance in a church or stuff like that and like okay where do they fall on and things like that so um the point there is of course churches have different leadership structures and styles now but ultimately they are still leaders in the church um they are leaders in different capacities leaders in different roles um and paul is simply saying that people that lead meaning people that serve should be honored for the work that they do of course not not all those roles translate into well, I don't need to say, I don't need to work. Why? I'm follow-up head. <laughs> so you're a funny person. <laughs> um, so no, I do think you can. Please pity the church. I think you can combine both responsibilities. Um, but again, it's very, con- it depends on the context. It depends on the scale of the church. It depends on the scale of the work. Um, but the point there is, if people are serving, they should be recognized and honored for their labors that's just the general idea but yeah that's deacons and elders are spiritual leaders in the church that are responsible for both the day-to-day and the spiritual health of that church i hope that makes sense um yes it does um and and like like a follow-up question on that is so like what is the like is there a place for, I know we're talking about you know evaluating and testing and proving their character mm. before appointing them, but like does that overshadow like divine instruction in any way? Like um, let's say, yeah, go on. Like let's say someone 
you know, just receive the word from God to go serve, mm. you know, and just also praise and love this. I don't know how long it would take for them to evaluate it and prove <laughs> that, but, you know, just wondering. Um, good question. And I think, first of all, God's word would never, God's um, revealed word in the moment will never really violate God's written word. I think let's start with that it's something that we as charismatics need to realize um that at least if you are charismatic <laughs> um really to realize but then i hear what you're saying in the sense in which what if there is a genuine call on someone's life and it's the same way in no no ideal church system does someone just all of a sudden i joined the church i'm the pastor they are other levels of service and so you are you are handed five if you're faithful in five you're handed ten you are a even ask past they were first bible study leaders map leaders house fellowship house cell leaders small group leaders and then they are they are calling they are gifting their faithfulness was seen they were given more responsibility and more responsibility and more responsibility so no one is denying the fact that again um, you can listen to First Timothy three. This was the introduction. No one is denying the fact that God does, like they are again. God gifts His church with amazing individuals. Um, they are, God gifts His church with people to do certain things, and so no one is saying that you can't have a call of God on your life to pastor or to lead or to serve. But it doesn't violate the process. Neither does it violate the fact that you will be proven in smaller capacity before bigger responsibilities are handed over to you and so in a healthy church what that looks like is you would serve in smaller roles joshua served under moses before he led israel moses served in the wilderness moses served in jethro's house before he led the people of israel joseph served in potiphar's house in the prison before he got to the palace the disciples served under jesus for three years before jesus committed even when they were replacing he didn't just say oh who is the spirit of god saying there was a criteria he said whoever the person is must have been with us from baptism to ascension they shortlisted two people they prayed and they settled on one so it's never the spirit of god will not just cause you to put a novice in office it's not it's not ideal um yes the gifting can be recognized even from an early spiritual age but then the church's responsibility is to nurture and grow that gifting even paul served in antioch for years before god said separate unto me for the work i've called them so there would still be training there will still be um smaller levels of testing before it is evident that you are able to do whatever grand thing um, and in no way does the smaller become less significant it's another thing we need to realize that yes even in terms of god's wisdom and organization in the church we may all we may all operate at different scales of impact but don't be insecure in whatever god has called. if god calls you to faithfully disciple 10 people in your high school do that faithfully like that is what god would have you do in this moment don't 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 be so caught up in 
ah, I'm only doing this 10 now because I know there are millions to come. I, I know there are millions. No, 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 no. Focus on the 10 you are doing. The next, as God trusts you with more, more will come. But don't be so caught up in, for the nations, for the nations that you miss out on, at the end of the day, what are nations? Groups of individuals, right? Every soul matters. And so focus on what God has placed in your hand at the moment. And don't be, don't mask, um, don't mask uh, pride and selfish ambition with zeal for the nations. All right. Um, yeah, I hope that that helps. Thank you very much. That helps You're a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Any other questions? I think this is what pretty much done. This they were good questions, but I hope you. I hope you've learned something. Okay, I think any other questions, feel free to reach out to me personally. Um, if it's something I believe everyone can benefit from, I'll answer it in the next teaching. Um, you can put my number in the chat. Any, anyone that usually helps out with that, I appreciate you. Um, but yes, feel free to just send me a voice note, send me a message. Oh, I had a question about this and I would answer. If you want to be part of the broadcast list, where I share the flyer as well as any announcements as regards us meeting and all of that, just also send me a message that, oh, I want to be a part of the broadcast list. If you want to catch up on any of the previous teachings, um, please can someone also put that in the chat. All right, I'll pray. We'll share the benediction and we call it a day. Dear Lord, thank you for another amazing time in your word, I thank you for all that has been shared today. I thank you for the lessons we've learned around living for more than pleasure, around church administration, around faith um, and healing and trusting you and just any other way that any part of today's teaching has ministered to someone's life. I just, I just pray that we're able to apply this to our lives. I pray that as believers, our worship would not begin and end within the four walls of your church building, but that indeed everywhere we go, that our devotion and our commitment to you will be seen by all. I pray that we continually grow and learn from your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. All right, let me share my screen. At this point, feel free to turn on your mics or mute yourselves as we take the benediction so graciously prepared to us by Buki and Ayo. <laughs> all right one two okay now uh, i am a diligent student and do of the word i am a teacher of the word the word is profitable for my growth by the word by the word i am trained in righteousness and in the word my rejoices glory to hallelujah thank you all for your time i would see you same time next week saturday feel free to share with a friend um and have a great great week love you all bye bye bye